The following message was recorded during the Friends of Israel 2011 National Prophecy Conference season. These meetings were held in Winona Lake, Indiana and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more audio resources from the Friends of Israel, visit us at foi.org. Have you ever heard the expression, nothing stays the same? Things change. Uh, Churches, I go to churches all the time, and I can tell you that there are people in churches who love their pews and people who love their chairs. And there's been churches who have fought over pews and chairs and changing from one to the other. Nothing stays the same. Things change all the time, and they do in lots of different fields of endeavor, like law. Laws change all the time. Uh, You look at Washington, D.C., and how they can take a topic, an issue that confronts the country, and then they write legislation, and it goes on and on and on and on. No one reads it, but they've got it. In fact, We know for a fact that some of our people in Congress actually pass legislation without reading it first. Things change. Medicine changes. Uh, No longer does a doctor come to your house. Or if it does for you, you're probably related to him or her. But usually it doesn't happen, but it used to happen. And kinds of medication and doctors change procedures and surgery, all those things. Politics changes, transportation changes, even religion seems to change. Death isn't certain for everyone. There's going to be one generation of believers who are going to be taken up to be with him. But aside from that, most everyone else, everyone else will die. Death is the final frontier. And we wonder what what happens after death. Theologians are asked that. Pastors are asked that. Missionaries are asked that. Parents are asked that. What happens? I'm sure you've heard this one. When you're dead, you're dead. It's over. Done. In fact, we just heard a message that involved moral decay, and certainly an instigator to that would be, hey, If it feels good, do it. It doesn't really matter because there's no price to pay anyway. You're here and you're gone. Live and let live. When you're dead, you're dead. Everyone goes to a good place. You ever hear that? Everyone goes to a good place. Uh, God's going to let me in, I think. Sometimes you hear that. Some say, when we come back, we're going to do it again. Really, there is no death. We just come back. Sometimes we'll come back not as a human, as something else. And so people have ideas about what happens. My mother, when my father passed away, uh, she doesn't want to think about death. I mean, I'm her son. I've tried to communicate to her about things that I think are important, and She'll say something like this. If I'm busy, I don't have to think about it. And there are a lot of people who do that. They know it's there. They know it could be close. 
But as long as they're able to drown it out, keep the radio on, keep the TV on, go to meetings, keep moving, keep noise around, and maybe you don't have to think about it. We have false teachers who talk about death. When we read about these things, and when I say we, I'm talking about people in general, not we in this room. When, when we constantly hear about these crazies, what happens? Well, people think much less of what God wants them to think about. If there is no hell, if there is no judgment, if we all go to heaven, if everything is lovely and we pick daisies and all that, then, then we, don't, we don't think about it. We discount if somebody's going to say any of that. Well, today suicide rates have gone up. I don't know if you're aware of that. Legalizing euthanasia is becoming more and more, at least in our country, states are interested in passing those kinds of things. Death seems to come with a smiley face today, making it not too frightening of a thought. How's the church responded to all this? I'm talking about church corporate and then local churches. You go to a church. Most of the time, churches seem to avoid death, hell, and judgment. It's not a way to attract people. You know, to stand up in front of people and say, well, to listen to the th kinds of things you've already heard. I'm sure there's been some who said, man, could the news get any worse? Death? Judgment? I don't know about this. I want to hear something that lifts me up. But God seems to indicate to us through his word that we ought to pay attention. In Genesis chapter 18, it says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, Abraham's talking, as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all earth do right. In the Torah, before there were Jewish people, this is Genesis 18, so even though it was written by Moses, who was Jewish, he's writing at this time in Genesis, before there were Jewish people, the idea of the judge of all the earth, a righteous judge, one that is going to do right, exists. There's going to be judgment. In the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this judgment... The writer, Jewish himself, the writer of the book of Hebrews, is again confirming what was already in the Torah. We're here and we die. By the way, if you believe in reincarnation, this verse tells you you ought to reconsider. We die once, and after that, judgment. Hebrews chapter 4 and there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open, the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Jude, verse 6. 
And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Judgment. Verses 14 and 15. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Judgment day. There's a time of judgment. We will face him at some point. Now, there are different judgments in the Bible. Israel's going to be judged. The Gentile nations are going to be judged. Judgments seem to come from the text, and they're different judgments. In the garden, at the very beginning, things were nice. There was a time things were nice. People were happy. Maybe that's because there were only one of them and then two of them. Maybe that's why. I don't know. But I do know this, that at it for a time period, there was no sin. And man was told, don't. Now, I know the Bible tells about us about Jewish people. You know my personality. We're stiff-necked and hard-hearted people. By the way, this disobedient person wasn't Jewish. Okay? But I can tell you this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, Adam wasn't created that way. He was created innocent. But God said, don't. And he did. And the penalty for doing what he did, eating the forbidden fruit, was that in the day you eat thereof, judgment. You will surely die. Now I know, some of you are saying, well, he didn't go. No, he didn't. But the stopwatch was clicked. He was destined in that original state of which he was created to live forever. As long as he was in the garden, he would have lived forever. But now he's kicked out of the garden, and the clock starts to tick. And there will be an end to his life. And therefore, every person who's born The clock ticks from the moment they are born. Disobedience brought the fall, and it brought judgment. You shall surely die. We read on a little further in the Torah and Genesis. Wickedness of man was great on earth. The Lord was sorry that he made man. And there was judgment. Every human being except Noah and his family was judged and died. Judgment. There's more judgment. Man continued. He wanted to reach the heavens. He wanted to be God, in essence, and be with God, and rule with God. And as a result of that, God's judgment scatters the people and confuses their language. Genesis chapter 11. I want to look at three specific judgments. There's a lot more of them, lots of them. 
first of the three is the great white throne of judgment in Revelation chapter 20. Second is believer's judgment in 2 Corinthians and in Revelation 14. And the third is at Calvary. So we're going to look at just three judgments. As I said, I know there's more, but we're just going to look at those three. The first is the great white throne. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's some questions we want to ask about this great white throne of judgment. When does it take place? It actually takes place, as you read the book of Revelation, it takes place after the thousand years is up. It's at, at the end, right before the new heavens and the new earth. Every one and thing is judged already in the lake of fire. By the way, you've heard it before, Jim Shower's message about taking the word literally, difference between an allegorical interpretation and so we believe that the lake of fire is a lake of fire. We believe it's hot. We believe it's painful. We believe it's forever. Everyone, including Satan at this point, is dealt with. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Look, no one likes to talk about this kind of thing. We don't like to talk about hot. I just left Philadelphia yesterday morning at 6, well, my flight was 6 o'clock, so I left early, 6 in the morning. I left real early. And in the morning, when the sun wasn't even out, it was already 88 degrees. It was 105 degrees over the weekend. That's hot. But it's going to be like a vacation for those who are separated from God. There's other questions. Who? Who's the judge? Who's the one who does this? Jesus? The Lamb of God? Jesus who holds little kids in his hand? Jesus? Well, what does the scripture say? In John chapter 5, it says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So it seems that we can face Jesus as the Lamb, or we can face him as a God of wrath, holy, who must remove sin far from himself. Other question Who are the people judged? Well, if you're at the great white throne of judgment, I've got very bad news for you. If you're there, you're already in trouble. Just by being there, you're in trouble. Now, there's 
a sliver of good news. I don't know how good it is, but there's a sliver. You're going to be judged on your works, which means that some people are going to cook less than others, that some people will be in 1,000 degrees rather than 3,000 degrees. Now, how do we know that? And why would I even tease something like that? Well, the Bible says in uh, Revelation, they came from death and Hades. And if you were here for Andy's message, he talked and went into a great detail about the differences, Sheol and Hades, and talking about Gehenna and all those places. And he used Luke chapter 16, when Lazarus, who went to Abraham's bosom, he was in Sheol, but he was in Abraham's bosom. And the rich man went to Hades, but he was in torment. There was a division. They died, they were separated from God, but for the rich man, a yet future judgment at the great white throne awaits him because he was in Hades, and Hades was given up. Those people come out to be judged at the great white throne. So if you are at the great white throne, major trouble, big-time trouble. What? What happens at this great white throne of judgment? Well, books are going to be opened. Books are going to be opened. We live in an age today of uh, Twitter, of Facebook. Uh, Politicians are finding out that they could be doing something where they think they're just doing whatever they're doing by themselves or with somebody. No one knows about it. Somebody's got a camera. And before you know it, all the world knows what you're doing in living color. At the great white throne, if I could give the analogy, it might not be a good one, but it's the best one I could think of, all your actions in living color for all to see, no hiding the judge, all the evidence will be seen. Everything you did will be judged at the great white throne. Now, you know, what's interesting is we tend to think that once you're dead, that expression, you're dead, uh, you can't get into any more trouble once you're dead. I suspect that one of the reasons it takes place at this time is that a person's work is not necessarily done upon death. What about somebody who takes the life in cold blood of another life? Maybe even executed for that, found guilty and executed. But that person that they executed was a father or a mother, had children who were profoundly affected by what happened to them. In fact, their sin could go on. I believe at the great white throne, not only will your sin be judged for what you did, but the effects that it might have had all those generations later. The great white throne of judgment, the books are open. 
they will bear witness to the degree of guilt borne by the offenders. Judaism has a tradition involving God opening books. At Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, uh, before Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, there's a tradition amongst Jewish people to go uh, to a service called in Hebrew, Tashlich. Tashlich, we throw leavened bread into the a running uh, brook or stream, and, and we say to God, as far as that bread is taken away, so far remove my sin from me. And we greet each other at the New Year, Rosh Hashanah. May your name be inscribed in the book of life. At Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish tradition is that there's three books, the book of judgment, the book of life, and the book of neither. I say the book of neither. Well, the rabbis say, when, you come to, when it comes to Rosh Hashanah 10 days before Yom Kippur, most people aren't that bad that they're already in the book of judgment. On the other hand, most people aren't that good that their name's in the book of life. It's kind of like this. And so you will find Jewish people, observant Jewish people, during those 10 days of repentance, 10 days of awe, confessing sin to their fellow men, repenting of sin that they might have committed, hoping that they will have enough good deeds to outweigh their bad deeds, and so they could be found in the book of life. At the great white throne, it's realized, and that person will realize as they bow the knee to God forcefully, as they bow the knee, they'll realize that there was no way they could do anywhere close to enough good works in order to reach a holy God. Second judgment is believer's judgment. Romans chapter 14, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Now Paul's writing here to believers. So if you're here in Romans 14 or in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I got good news for you. You're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, you are saved. You still will face a judge. You still must give an account. But I always say I would rather be in the back of heaven where the fence just scratches my back than be in the front row in hell. So it could be, and we'll, we'll talk about it, you're going to be judged for what you do. Not for your salvation. You've trusted Christ as Savior. You know He's the only way, the truth, and the life. You know that you're being judged not by yourself, but have the righteousness of Christ. And so you're there before Him. But your works are going to be judged. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what He has done, whether good or bad. Important. So while the great white throne, our people who are unsaved, have their works judged, when we stand before the bima, that's what it's called in Greek, the Greek word is bima, it's used like a step, step or raised platform. Uh, Paul stood before the judgment seat uh, when he was in Caesarea, and in Corinth, it's a special place where the judge 
sits. In fact, uh, usually in uh, places it would be in a prime spot, a good spot to see everything. The bima is the judgment seat, and it could be judged, you could be judged for good or bad. You could be commended or you could be judged. All who stand there are saved. All have Jesus' righteousness. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Look, once a person embraces Jesus Christ, Jesus' righteousness enfolds him or her. When God sees us, he doesn't see us. He sees the righteousness of his Son. And so, because of that, we will be at the Bema seat but we're judged. Do you think any believers do things that are good because they want other people to see them? Oh, I think so. And while it could be good, it will be judged. Bad attitudes. Now, I'm sure everyone here has a wonderful attitude 24-7. No problem. But, there's a provision, everything is judged, even for a believer. I think we ought to prepare for that kind of judgment, don't you? I think we, knowing that God has given us the information, knowing that we're going to give an account of our works, our deeds, our service, it would do, we would do well to take spiritual inventory. Are we faithful? Look, these are hard questions for me. I've asked myself, obviously, putting this together. And by no means could I say who. And now that I know this, I'm going to teach you. No way. I'm simply telling you that it's a helpful thing to be reminded. Oh, we come to a conference like this. Do I get brownie points for this, God? I attended Friends of Israel Prophecy Conference. What's that worth? It's got to be worth something. Motivation, the heart, humbleness. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 says, Examine yourself. He's talking to believers here. As to whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. It's a healthy thing. Not necessarily pleasant thing but a helpful thing. At your particular local church, you probably have communion. It's called different things, breaking of bread, Eucharist, called a lot of different things. But it would be a good thing before you take elements at your church to ask yourself some of these questions. That's what Paul's trying to tell the folks in Corinth. Examine yourself. Andy was mentioning some of the things that go on in Rome and in America. Does the church partake in some of those things that Andy talked about? Do you partake in some of those things that Andy talked about? Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Ask yourself the hard questions. By the way, it's a lot easier to ask yourself when it's 68 degrees, when it's 100 outside, versus 1,000 degrees, and it's too late. 
ask yourself that question. You know, there's things that we'll be able to lay at the feet of the judge. Crowns that we'll be able to lay before him. The incorruptible crown in 1 Corinthians 9. Really the crown of self-control. Huh. Just If you get an angle this way, you'll know I'm working on one of the problems. Self-control. We don't like to talk about that. I'm working at it. Discipline. Some of us are more disciplined than others. But we can stand before God if we live a disciplined life and give him a crown that he's given to us to give back to him. Crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians. Wouldn't it be great to know when you get to heaven that there's some people there Certainly they're all there because of him, but that you helped contribute to that person's coming to know Christ by your testimony, by a word, by something you did. Crown of rejoicing. The crown of life. We talked about voices of the martyrs, people who are willing to suffer and die for the cause of Christ. The crown of life. Enduring trials. The crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy, looking for his appearance. You know, when I first moved to Chicago a number of years ago, I now live in Philadelphia, but when I first moved to Chicago, uh, I got involved in a Bible study, and, and there was a man there at that time elderly, at least to me he was elderly, now I'm approaching where he was, but he was elderly at the time. And it was interesting to me because when I met him, he couldn't talk about anything else but the, second, but the rapture and the second coming of Christ. Nothing else. All he talked about was Jesus coming back. You know, God teaches us and demonstrates to us, and I honestly believe that he's got a crown of righteousness because he loved and talked about the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're here at this conference, and I know several of you just can hardly wait to see his face. Maybe you'll have a crown to lay before his feet. The crown of glory in 1 Peter it seems to be a special crown for one who shepherds the flock. Now, you could be tempted to say this is only for pastors. I'm reluctant to do that. I think there's people in their Christian experience who have people who they're mentoring, who even if you don't know that you are, people watch you. And so this is a special crown that we get for shepherding the flock. The third judgment, real quick. John chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. This judgment took place at Calvary. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. If you're found at the Bema judgment. You are there because of the judgment at Calvary. You're there because 
God sent his son to pay the price of our sin. There was judgment at Calvary. Harsh judgment levied at the son who knew no sin but came, became sin for us. Isaiah 53 tells us he's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and, as, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. In John chapter 3, the judgment of Calvary from the context there would take place just a couple of years later. Here in Isaiah 53, the judgment is prophesied 700 years before it happens. But nonetheless, we're told in the Bible that that judgment will come, and it did come 2,000 years ago. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. We're going to face the judge. You can face him at the great white throne of judgment, on your own, in your own righteousness, which falls so short of his, where you will be judged, and you might not be as bad as some, you'll be better than others, but you're in big trouble. You could be judged at the Bema seat. And if you're found at the Bema seat, that means that the judgment at Calvary was one that you've been. You've been to the cross. You went there, confessed, bowed down, admitted your guilt, acknowledged that on your own you're helpless and hopeless, that only through that great gift of the Lord Jesus Christ could you ever be found at the Bema seat. The question for all of us, where are we going to be? Where are our loved ones going to be? We at least ought to be motivated, knowing what lies ahead and what we've been spared, to communicate in love, to be a testimony to those around us. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God.